1 Peter chapter 1. Look, if you would, in verse number 6. I'm not going to preach these verses. I'm going to preach them in two weeks. I'm just going to pick a word out this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We're making our way through First Peter. This is the passage that I have worked on most this week, and well, there is so much in those three verses to preach. The way that it works with me is I am rarely satisfied with my study before I preach a message. I always feel like there's more in the text than what I see. And then I am never satisfied after the message. When I get done, I'll be depressed. I will think that I could have done a better job, wish I had not left something out or had to rush through to whatever it might be. So, so often I come to the pulpit, I'm ready to preach, but I'm not ready. I walk out of the pulpit wishing I could redo that. And in preaching verse by verse as we are through 1 Peter, we're looking at every phrase in the verse, not necessarily every word. You think it took us a long time to get through the first five verses, just think what it would be if we're tracing every single word. So we're not doing that, we're just going concept by concept. But as you read a book over and over and over and over and over, there are key words that keep popping up within that book. We have mentioned in the book of 1 Peter the word suffering, or some cognate of that suffering mentioned 16 times. The word hope, hope four times, glory six times, grace 11 times in both epistles. So a book that talks a lot about suffering also talks about hope and glory and grace. And it's interesting when you listen to people talk, how you can pick up, Words, favorite words, words they, they use a lot. I listen to some podcasts, not a lot, but I listen to some podcasts when I'm walking. And I notice that every person that makes a podcast begins with how excited they are about this episode. I am so excited about this episode and we have such an exciting topic and there's an exciting guest on this exciting day. And, and even my microphone is excited about this podcast. And so I have determined, if I ever have a podcast, I will not allow the word exciting to be used. It will not be an exciting podcast. I have determined that, all right? But as I have gone through 1 Peter, I have marked certain words that seem to be Peter's favorite words. Sometimes you can find words that are found only in a book like 1 Peter. What words did he use that are not found anywhere else in the rest of of the Bible. I found one man who did an analysis of First and Second Peter. And he had a list of all of the unique words that are found only in these two letters. And I got excited about that. I, I thought that was great. And then I discovered that he was using the New American Standard Bible and that didn't help me at all. It just threw everything out, out, out the window. One of the words that Peter loves to use, and we saw this last week, but in verse number four, to an inheritance incorruptible, incorruptible. If you look down in verse number 18, for as much as you know this, you're not redeemed with corruptible things. If you look at verse 23, 
being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. He just seems to like that word incorruptible. And I said a little bit about that last week, and I don't want to steal my thunder because I'm coming to verse 18, and I'm coming to verse 23 in coming weeks. But to corrupt something is to make it of no value. It is to make something worthless. But Peter says we have some things that are incorruptible. They can't be stained. They can't be spoiled. They can't be ruined. can't be desecrated. They can't be diminished in value. And I like that word because everywhere that I look, I see corruption. This world that we live in is full of corruption. It is full of corrupt men. Even our government is, is corrupt. As corrupt, I think, as any nation on the face of the earth. In Genesis 1 and verse number 31, the Bible says that God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. And so the creation was created in every way. It was perfect and thin. Sin entered into the world and it ruined what God had created so perfectly. Sin corrupted this world. So just six chapters later, the Bible says that God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. So we live and we languish in a very corruptible world. However, there are some things that I have that cannot be corrupted. I thank God for that. I mentioned this last night, I, I, last week, I'm not going to re-preach it, but I have an incorruptible body, that's verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It is an inescapable law of nature that our bodies break down and decay. I do not feel at 52 like I felt at 22. I, I feel every year of my age. And we don't help ourselves by our diet and our lifestyle, but even still, you can't stop the decaying process. No matter how healthy you live, age is going to catch up with you. I was out the other day walking, and I, I try to walk quite a bit, and I was out walking around a track, and, and, and my phone rang, and so I answered the phone, there was a preacher, and, and he, said, he said, hey, what you doing? I said, I'm trying to reverse the curse. That's what I'm trying to do. He said, is it working? I said, no, no, not at all. In fact, I think about quitting and going to go get a donut. I think it would be better. <laughs> But we have reserved, we have reserved an incorruptible, glorified body. You will not have to endure eternity in a broken down, crippled, diseased body. This past week, this past week, I think I knew more people in the hospital than just about outside of the hospital. But there won't be any hospitals in heaven. I have an incorrupt, incorruptible body. But then there's incorruptible blood. Look at verse number 18. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The blood of Christ, that's a great doctrine, by the way. John 1 and verse 7, it's the cleansing blood. Revelation 1 and verse 5, it's the washing blood. Acts 20 and verse 28, it's the purchasing blood. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, it's redeeming blood. Romans 5 and verse 9, it's the justifying blood. Colossians 1 and verse 20, it's peacemaking blood. Hebrews 13 and verse 12, it's the sanctifying blood. There's a scarlet thread that runs in your Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And whenever you open the Bible, run straight to Calvary, and it always runs crimson with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's blood stains all over your Bible. It's a bloody book. I heard somebody say one time that the word blood is found exactly as many times in your Bible as the word sin. 447 times. 
the word blood 447 times, the word sin 447 times, and that's great preaching. Boy, you can take that and say, man, there's enough blood for every sin. No matter how much sin you have committed, there's still enough blood to cleanse it. But you got to be careful just repeating things. You got to make sure that it's true. So I checked it, and it's not. Actually, sin is mentioned one time more than the word blood. Blood, 447 times in your King James Bible, the word, the word sin, just sin by itself, 448 times in the Bible. Now, well, that, that messed that preaching point up, huh? But it didn't diminish the power of the blood. There's still enough blood for every sin that you've ever committed. There is an incorruptible body. There's incorruptible blood. But then there's an incorruptible book. Look at verse 23. Being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I have an inerrant, infallible, incorruptible word of God. And just as no disease will ever invade my incorruptible body, and no decay can come to the incorruptible blood, so no errors, no false doctrine can ever destroy the purity of the word of God. <laughs> Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure, whereas as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I have an incorruptible book. And I don't want to say much about it because I'm going to come back to those verses. But that was a word that Peter liked to use. It was exciting to him. It's an exciting word. Well, I found another word that Peter loved. It's found in verse number 7. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than a gold. He really liked that word. In fact, Peter alone will use that word seven times in both epistles. It's a beautiful word. And the word precious carries the idea of something that is priceless. It goes beyond um, monetary value. And Peter says there are some things that you cannot put a price on. They are Precious, They're precious. Hold your finger right here. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I'll give you an illustration of it. Matthew chapter number 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, look if you would at verse number 45. Matthew 13 and verse 45, Jesus telling a parable about a man who finds a pearl of great price. It's so valuable there's no price that you can put on it. So in verse number 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This pearl is so valuable to him and is so precious to him that he sells everything that he owns in order to buy this one pearl of great price. That phrase, great value, great value, or great price, it is the same word, or the same Greek word that you get the word precious from. I tell you what the Greek word is, but I don't know. I just, I, 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 I don't know Greek at all. But he says it's of great price. It's of great value. It's valuable to me. Now, some commentators say that this pearl is the church. Others say that it's the, it's Israel. Jesus said it's the kingdom of heaven. All right, the kingdom of heaven. It's like a man when he finds a pearl of great price, went and sold all they had and bought it. Now, I'm not going to get into this this morning, but the kingdom of God is both, it's both physical and spiritual. In its final 
ultimate form will be the time when Jesus Christ rules over the earth and all of his authority and all of his power and all of his glory. But the kingdom is also spiritual. It is in, it is in the hearts of men who have believed on Christ and, and, and he rules in their life. And so the kingdom of Christ, it, it, is, it, is, it is within me. He rules my life spiritually like he will one day rule the earth physically. When you believe in Christ, he begins to rule in you and it becomes, as it were, that spiritual kingdom. And it's like finding a, a, a treasure of great price. It is something that you can't put a price on. It is something that is worth more than even the world. And if a man gets a chance to get this treasure, he would be a fool not to do everything that he can in order to get that, to have Christ ruling in your heart. We rarely have testimony services around here because it's kind of like pulling teeth to get somebody to say something good about Jesus. But if we were to have a testimony service, I mean, 50 people ought to jump up immediately and say getting saved was the best thing that ever happened to me. The treasure that you found the day that you trusted Christ, the forgiveness and the love and the joy and heaven too, if you were asked to put a price on it, there, there is no price. It's of great price. It's of, it's of great value. If you had to sell every possession you had to buy it, you would do that because you realize what a treasure it is to know Christ and to think you didn't have to sell anything. You, you didn't have to do anything. All that you did had to do was just trust Christ. Look, if you would, in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, here, here's another example of this. Look at John chapter 12, look at verse number 1. Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, when he raised, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at a table with him. Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. You didn't know that what Mary did that day is, is recorded in all four Gospels. She has this alabaster box of ointment. The Bible says it's an expensive bottle of perfume, and Mark would tell you that it's 300 pence. That's about an average, day, or an average year's wages for the common working man. And John says that she poured it on his feet. Matthew says that she poured it on his head, so I think she poured it on his head and it went down to his feet. And Mary understood something. She understood that that, that he's going to the cross and she understood the resurrection while it has gone over everybody else's head and, and Jesus has raised Lazarus, her brother, from the dead and her heart is so full of love and, and worship and adoration and so she takes that bottle that's very costly and she breaks it, she breaks it and she anoints the Lord Jesus with that. Well, what did God, what did God, some of us, we get so overwhelmed with love for Jesus that we would be lavish in our worship. Huh? I mean, I mean, when Jesus is so precious that you just want to pour something out, I wish that I had more to give. She gave something that was precious to her because he was more precious than it. What's more precious to you than Jesus? And so I come to Peter and I, I come to this word precious and, and, and I love that word. And there are several things that Peter says is precious, is precious. Look, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look, if you would, um, let me show you the first thing that he says is precious. Look at verse number 7. He said that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold 
that perisheth. Now we know that Peter's writing to suffering saints, but not one time does he ever speak negatively of their trials. Not one time does he ever use disparaging words. When he talks about trial, then he talks about glory and rejoicing and, and, and unspeakable joy. If you look in chapter 4, chapter 4, if you would, look in verse number 13. But rejoice, rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's strange, isn't it? Now, 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 now be careful. It's not a, a, a flippant, silly, light-hearted, Pollyanny, thank God I have cancer kind of rejoice. That's not what he's talking about. That's silly. It doesn't mean that I, I'm so glad that this came into my life and I'm going to be happy for this pain. And No. Rejoicing doesn't deny the trial and it doesn't deny the pain. But it's confidence that God will work through that pain for my good. And I have so much more to say about these verses when I get there. But, but I want you to think about just, just one thing, all right? I read through 1 Peter and I was struck by how much Peter mentions the cross of Christ. And of course, the cross of Christ is not an unusual subject. It is the message of the gospel. But Peter does something with the cross that I don't know any other writer does. He doesn't write so much about the cross for our salvation. We know that it is. But he writes about the cross as our example. He's already writing to people that are saved, so he uses the sufferings of Christ as an example for when we suffer. Look, look at chapter 2, if you would, and, and verse number 21. Chapter, chapter 2, he says verse 21, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his step. Do you catch that? Suffering for Christ, leaving us example to follow in his steps. Well, what is his example? Well, verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. The example of Jesus is that he suffered. He suffered but he didn't commit any sin in his sufferings. Are you listening? He didn't get angry with God. He didn't become unrighteous. He didn't collapse under the suffering. He never said anything in deceit or reviling. He didn't utter any threats. Instead, he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. So when it says that his sufferings are an example, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to die like you can't die for somebody else's sin, but you're going to look at how he suffered on that cross and you can say, that's how I want to suffer. By the way, didn't God accomplish his very best through the absolute worst? The cross of Christ is the greatest act of suffering in history. It's not just the physical pain. It's not just the scourging and the crucifixion, but the pain of the sinless one bearing our sin. No one has ever suffered what Christ suffered on the cross. But out of his suffering, oh, I wish you heard this, out of his suffering came 
the greatest triumph. Out of that suffering came redemption and salvation and the power of sin was broken and death was defeated and out of that suffering came hope for the world and forgiveness from sin and reconciliation with God. Out of the greatest suffering came the greatest triumph and what the cross teaches us that suffering is the path to glory and blessing. I'm telling you that trials are precious to a child of God because of what God can produce through them. There's another thing that he says is precious. Come, come back to second, 1 Peter 1. And, and again, look at verse number 18. For as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with, the, here it is, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, modern religions have taken the blood out of the hymnals and Modern Bible versions have taken the blood out of the translations. But a theology without blood is a theology without hope. You think about how important blood is to your life. Well, that's how important blood is to your spiritual life. Leviticus says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Well, the life of the believer is in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood, the blood is the most mystical part of all, all the body parts. It's the only body part that has the ability to circulate. Now, now you have other liquid components like saliva, bile, whatever, but, but those are body products, not a body part. They say that the body, I think, produces five quarts of blood and it touches every cell in your body like every 23 seconds. It carries oxygen to every cell. It carries vitamins and nutrients. It takes the trash out. Every body has to have blood. If, if, if the blood was, to cut, was cut off from your hand, eventually you would have to amputate that hand because the blood carries life to every part of your body. The, the blood is vital is what it is. And about 30 years ago, there was a controversy in, in evangelical circles over the blood of Christ. And you had modernist religions that was taking blood out of their vocabulary. We don't have a bloody religion that's so gory. I remember when the United Methodist Church took all of the songs about the blood out of their hymnal and Bible translations, began taking blood out of their new Bible. And the controversy was over whether it was the actual physical blood of Christ that had redeeming power. And some were substituting blood for death. It was Christ's death that saves us, not necessarily that he had to die a bloody death. Nothing special about the physical blood of Christ. It was, it's what it represented. It's what, it's, it was just his dying. That's what they were saying. 1986, John MacArthur wrote this. He says, it was his death that was efficacious, not his blood. Christ did not bleed to death. The shedding of blood had nothing to do with bleeding. It simply means death. Nothing in his human blood saves. It's not his blood that I love. It is him. It is not his bleeding that saved me, but his dying. Well, I have an answer for that. For as much as you're not, not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Did you catch the word? That's what it said. With the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The word blood is not just an emblem for death. They're not synonymous. Blood is literal. He shed his blood for us. Leviticus 17, 11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. He has given it as an atonement for souls. Atonement means to cover. The blood was given to cover your sin. 
His blood was given, was shed in the stead of your blood. Thank God for that. In the Old Testament, there was only one place of sacrifice. That was the tabernacle and, and then the temple. You didn't offer for sacrifices just any, anywhere in any way. No, there was a prescribed pattern and there was a prescribed place. And God was giving us a lesson for the New Testament that there is one place where you can find forgiveness of sins. That's the cross of Calvary. And Christ did not bear our sins in the synagogue. It's not his teaching that saves us. He did not bear our sins in the manger. It's not his birth that saves us. He did not bear our sins in the river Jordan. Baptism does not save us. No, he bore our sins. Somebody ought to say amen. On the cross of Calvary, it's his blood that saves us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? Would you or evil to victory and win? Would you be free from your passion and pride? Would you be wider, much wider than snow? There's power in the blood. Thank God for that. I'm telling you that the blood of Christ is precious to the believer. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Here's something Peter says is precious. Look at 2 Peter 1 and look at verse number 4. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now I'm going to tell you that when you suffer, that the promises of God are more precious thin than if you're not suffering. There is a self-sufficiency. There is a self-reliance that comes with prosperity and greed and when there's money in your pocket. I don't know if you're this way. I notice that I walk a little bit taller whenever I have money in my pocket. I just do. A little swagger. I, um, I try, I try to always keep a $100 bill in my pocket at all times. And I see how long I can go without breaking the $100 bill. Once you break the $100 bill, you've spent the $100 bill. Is that right? So as long as you don't break it, you're good. All right? And I've, I've noticed that when I have, when I have a roll in my pocket that I have a little swagger. Just, I just a little, I'm not cocky, but just a little bit more cocky than I do. Huh? It, it's kind of like when you're carrying, all right? When, when, sometimes I'm carrying, sometimes my piece is in the truck. But when I'm carrying, when I can feel the weight of that gun, it's a little bit like, like you looking at me. Huh? You, you had something to say? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone know? Is it just, just me? When you got money in your pocket or you got a gun in your boot or something, I'm just telling you, 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 just, you just feel a little bit bigger. But when you are stripped down and there is trouble on every side, you lose the swagger of life. You realize how fleeting that life is and how fast money flies away and how insecure everything in this world is. We, we, we sold our house this year and we're in a rental and, and we think that we would like to build next year and we're waiting to see and, and, and there's so much uncertainty in the economy and, and what have you. So right now we're just sitting and just waiting to see what happens and we might just get us a big tent. I, I don't know what we're going to do. And we're just, we're just holding on. But, but, but I'm, telling, I'm telling you, there's not much in this world that is very secure. And that is when the promises of God will be precious to you. Do, you. do you know what makes a promise precious and real? It is the person that makes it. Isn't that right? I mean, a promise is only as good as the person that makes it. Have you ever made a promise you didn't keep? 
You ever had somebody make a promise to you that they didn't keep? I bet God's never done that with you. God never overpromises and He never underdelivers. And no matter what you go through, God has a promise for your trial. You have yet to have a situation that God scratches his head. I have people come to me and ask me about a situation and I try to sound wise and I wonder, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Can I get back with you next Tuesday and let me think about that? But you'll never do that with God. You'll never come to God with a problem. And God say, can I get back to you Wednesday? Can I talk to the Son and the Holy Spirit to see if we can come up with some idea? No, God will never do that. Somebody in here, your, your struggle right now is with a fearful mind and you're so scared of what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you, there's a promise for you. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down and thy sleep shall be sweet. And there's somebody here, not everybody. There's somebody here, your mind is tormented with worry and you lay awake at night and it's just worry, 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 worry. There's a promise for you. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And there's somebody sitting in here and you're facing trouble. And, and trouble on every hand. There's a word for you. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. We, we've, all, we've all had a friend, friend, friend promise us something and we knew it would never happen. He's just talking. That's all he's doing. But we know how it goes. Don't put a whole lot of stock. It's probably not going to happen. I'm going to tell you something. You can get excited when you read the promises of God because He always performs what He promises. And I want you to know you don't have to live in fear and anxiety and worry and stress and doubt. The promises of God will heal your mind. It will take the stress out of your life. It will put the peace of God in your heart. It will help you to have joy during joyless days. Let me tell you, the promises of God are precious. Let me show you one more. Come back to 1 Peter 2. Just, just a word this morning, just a word. 1 Peter 2 and verse 7. And to you therefore which believe, he is precious. By the way, that's the first text that Charles Spurgeon preached from the age of 16. He preached a message from that verse right there. And if you continue to read, Peter makes a contrast Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So to the unbeliever, Christ is a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. There's nothing precious about him to this world. They use his name as a curse word. They mock his claims. They desecrate his cross. They blaspheme his honor. He doesn't mean much to this world. Though he doesn't mean much to the world, he means the world to me. And I say to you this morning, there is nobody as precious as Jesus. And here's why. Because there is nothing in Christ but what is precious. Let me say it again. There is nothing in Christ but what is precious. I love a lot of men. There's a lot of men in this church I great affection for. But I don't know if there's any man that I love everything about you. Well, Eric, we've known each other for 15 years. 15 years. Well, Eric and I are probably as close as anybody, and I, 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 I love Brother Eric. 
I count Brother Eric as a dear friend. And we've had highs and lows and ups and downs, and here we still are. But I don't love everything about him. <laughs> there, there are parts to every man that is not precious. But with Christ, I love everything about him. There is, there is no attribute, there is nothing about him that is not sweet to my soul. It is the nature of men to prize things too highly. That's how you end up in debt. A slave to credit cards and mortgages and payments and JCPenney and all the, all the rest. It's because we value things more than they are truly worth. You may have a car or a boat or a set of golf clubs or a horse or whatever it might be, and it's wonderful to have those things, but you put too high of a price on that thing. But you cannot place too high of an esteem on Christ. In fact, however precious he is to you, he's actually more precious than that. His, his riches are unsearchable. If you give a baby a cheap toy, the baby will not want for gold. And if you give the world all of its lust, it will be content without Christ. But when you trust him, you will count Christ better and more precious than all the trinkets of life. Moses counted that suffering for Christ, suffering for Christ is better than the treasures of Egypt. Jesus is precious to them that believe. I was thinking this morning, walking around the parking lot, that I think that this year has probably been one of the hardest years I've ever experienced in life and ministry. Now, when I say that, you have to understand, right now everything's going really, really good for the Fuller family. I'm more grateful for it. Money in my pocket. Kids are doing good. Grandkids like to come over. Life is good. But it's been a heavy year. It's been heavy for a lot of you, too. And um, I, I think that this year there's been more Pressure of ministry, um, pressing to get things done, the, the burden of everybody else carrying burdens and you try to carry that, and that heaviness, that heaviness. It's been a heavy year, a hard year. But for some reason, somehow, I feel like that my walk with God and just my personal Communion with Christ. It seems like that I sing more now than I ever have before. And I enjoy it. It seems like that God has given me a tenderness of heart back that I, it seems like that I lost. And I can truly say that it seems like that right now, after having been saved for 45 years, that Jesus is more precious to me than ever before. That's possible. And that's how I want it to be. I don't, I don't want the focus of my life to be on the trials and the pressure of getting things done. I want it to be on just having communion with him. And I ask you this morning, piano player, come. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? 
throughout the week? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Is your, is your relationship, is it getting deeper? Or are you so drowning and overwhelming in whatever troubles that you have that all of that is pushed aside? I know, I know. Listen, I'll help you. I know that we pray so often, oh, God, help me. God, take this away. I know that's our prayer. But if that's all that your prayer is, you're missing something. Because even in the storm, even in the trial, he wants to draw close to you. And he wants you to draw close to him. If all that you do is sing and praise him, and you're on the mountaintop, what glory is that to him? But when you can take the storm, when you can take the suffering, the trials, and still sing to him what a testimony of the grace of God. And it could be, our heads about our eyes are closed, it could be that you have spent so much time calling out to God and crying out to God, oh God, help me. Maybe you need to go back to just say, God, thank you. Thank you for your blessings. So, so precious.